Zechariah chapter 3, our Bible reading is going to be the entire chapter um, taking on something of a daunting task. Uh, about two years ago, a year and a half ago or so, I preached a series of messages through the book of Zechariah and dealt rather deeply and extensively with uh, the various parts and the different visions in this book. I'm going to try, wish me luck, uh, as the Baptists would say, I'm going to try to summarize the book of Zechariah in a message. I don't know if that's possible, but I think to do that, looking at the fourth vision that we have in chapter 3 is going to be the way to do it. And so we'll read this whole chapter, and then with some introductory comments, uh, try to bring you up to speed on chapter content, what's exactly happening in the book of Zechariah, who this prophet is, why he's writing, what's he telling the people, uh, to, to get us a running start into uh, the substance of what we have here in chapter 3. It's a familiar passage to you, I assume, especially in this congregation, uh, because of the nature of this vision at the beginning and the illustration that's there of the doctrine of justification. We'll get to that in a few moments. But let's begin our reading in verse number 1 of Zechariah 3. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Amen. Well, in the Bible reading there at the end of chapter 3, let's ask the Lord's help as we have the scriptures open before us. Let's pray. Our Father, with our Bibles open, we, come, we pray that you by your Spirit would come and open our hearts, that you would speak to us through your Word, even as we've prayed already for the Spirit's ministry among us to help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah was a prophet of hope during a time of Israel's chaos. 
If I could summarize the whole book, that's the way I would put it. Zechariah was a prophet of hope during a time of Israel's chaos. The remnant had returned to Jerusalem, and they were not seeing things go according to plan. Those that had returned went there with a great zeal, uh, much excitement, but that initial zeal soon wore off. It wasn't terribly long after they arrived that the foundation of the new temple had already been laid. Like I said, they went with some great zeal and they got to work. And uh, this foundation of the temple was there, but basically by the time that foundation was laid, the zeal was gone and the work, for the most part, had ground to a halt. Nothing was happening and the people were very discouraged. There were two prominent leaders that God raised up. There was Zerubbabel. He was from the kingly tribe. And Zerubbabel was raised up as the main one to organize the rebuilding of this temple. And then there was Joshua the high priest from the tribe of Levi, obviously, as a priest. And even those two men, great leaders that they were, couldn't keep the people on track. The Lord raised up Haggai the prophet to preach. And Haggai's main message was, you need to get your priorities in line. And you read the book of Haggai and you'll see that as Haggai preaches to the people, he's seeking to get their attention because the people are busy building their own houses and they had neglected the house of the Lord. And Haggai's main message is, no, the Lord's house comes first. You do the Lord's work first, and then you can take care of your own needs. But there are priorities here that need to be straight and need to be in order. Haggai preached for about two months before Zechariah came on the scene. And Zechariah begins his prophecy with a message of repentance. Turn to the Lord. Now, there was a promise attached to that. Turn to the Lord, and I will return to you. That's the Lord's promise. You'll see it in chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore saith unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't want to get too far off track here, but this seems like an odd message. Because those that had returned from Babylonian captivity back to Israel, if I can put it this way, they were the best of the best. They were the ones who were actually obedient to what God had said to do. And it was a very small percentage of them that actually returned back to Jerusalem. Most of them just stayed in Babylon. They were happy there. They'd been there for 70 years. They'd grown up there. They'd been born there. They married wives there. They had a life there. And to, to leave all that, to go back to this chaos, yeah, they weren't interested in that. They were happy enough where they were. But God had told them to come back. God had miraculously organized circumstances for them to come back. And these that came back, they were the faithful remnant. And here comes Zechariah saying, no, you need to repent. Your, your priorities are all out of line. Just like Haggai's been saying, you need to repent. You need to return to the Lord. 
and the Lord will turn to you. And so Zechariah begins to unfold these visions. And these visions, in a way, explain what the Lord turning back to his people is going to look like. So I just run through these very, very quickly. The first vision shows us the Lord's work of inspection. Based on that inspection, the Lord is going to make things right. The Lord is going to come and he's going to find that the people have repented. And the Lord is going to be faithful to his promise. He's going to make things right. The Lord knows and he cares about everything that Israel was facing. He will abide with his people and he will change all that is wrong. That's the first vision. The second and the third visions show us what the Lord making things right is going to look like. God's going to cut off the horns of power that have been scattered and that have destroyed the Lord's people. God's going to deal with them. He's going to, to deal with the enemies, and he's going to establish Jerusalem in a position of greatness. He's going to make all that was wrong right. I believe as we take application from all this to us, that we are to understand these visions as a vision of the reality and not a vision of the shadow. Now, I don't want to be confusing by what I say here. This, these visions are visions of the reality, not visions of the shadow. And what I mean by that is that Jerusalem being raised up, as, as you go back and read these first two chapters, Jerusalem being raised up as a city without walls, and the Lord being a wall of fire round about her is not a prophecy that was ultimately fulfilled in the shadow, Jerusalem being the shadow that represents the reality. The vision was a statement of what the reality is going to be. The reality is the kingdom of God is going to advance and the kingdom of God is going to prosper and God is going to be a wall of fire around the kingdom of God and it will be victorious. Jerusalem was a picture of that. And the prophecy, Jerusalem did advance, but we're yet to see We've yet to see in history the full manifestation of what that looks like. We'll see a little bit of this later on toward the end of our message this morning. But what God is doing here is he's demonstrating to the people that he is systematically undoing their chaos and he's bringing revival victory to his people. This is the message of Zechariah. This is what the book is about. I've not said this yet, but Zechariah, his name means God remembers. Zechariah, as a prophet, was an object lesson to the people. God has not forgotten them. From, from every visual observation, these would seem like such an insignificant nothing of a people. Surely, the great God that created all things is not on their side. But know his very name. God remembers. God has not forgotten the covenant promises that he's made to his people. And how could all these promises come true if Israel was having so much trouble? If there were so many problems, how could these promises be a reality? 
And I'm sure at the time, as Haggai was preaching and as Zechariah was preaching, there were people in the congregation, as it were, that were listening to these grandiose promises, and their attitude was, yeah, right. Yeah, right. This can never happen. You don't understand how bad it is. Things can never turn around. I'm sure there had to be a naysayer there. Maybe you're a modern-day naysayer to uh, the gospel advancing with power and national revival, worldwide revival coming. Maybe that's your attitude of a, yeah, right, things are so bad. Well, this fourth vision really comes as something of a culmination of the promises to give people great hope amid the chaos of life. And so what we have here is a courtroom scene in this vision. God is the one who's sitting as the judge, and Joshua, the high priest, the representative of the people, of the nation, is standing on trial. And there is no doubt that he's guilty. But yet the proceedings of the trial go forward nonetheless. And at the very beginning of this trial, we see that the Lord puts the great enemy to silence. Look what it says at the end of of verse number one. Satan standing at Joshua's right hand to resist him. It's, if you understand the, the language there and what's going on in the Hebrew, it's kind of a play on words. It says that Satan was Satanizing. The resistor was resisting. The opposer was opposing. And that's what Satan was doing. This was, this was Satan doing his job to resist the people of God. And the Lord stops his mouth. The Lord says, rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. This is a brand plucked out of the fire. This is one that I've saved and redeemed. He's not going to be destroyed. And so Satan, shut your mouth. Stop talking. You don't have a voice here. This teaches us really, does it not, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood in the truest sense of the word? Because as Jerusalem was trying to rebuild, as this foundation was going and there was an effort to rebuild the temple and then Years later, Nehemiah is going to come and they're going to start the walls. And there's so much opposition. And it was nation after nation. Just all these city-states roundabout were just antagonistic against Jerusalem. But in the courtroom scene, the Lord kind of weeds through all of that opposition and identifies the real enemy. Satan is the one who's behind all that opposition. And the Lord put Satan aside. But this fourth vision is one that gives the people hope amid their chaos. Four things that I want you to see. Four four ways that the Lord gives hope. Uh, Four parts of this chapter that the Lord uses to to really encourage his people. And I want to deal with each of those four this morning. The first one is we have hope because of the removal of of iniquity. Hope because of the removal of iniquity. 
This passage is one of the most clear illustrations that we have in Scripture of justification by faith alone. It's it's possible, um, but perhaps irresponsible, to, to, to preach and teach in any full way about the doctrine of justification without coming to Zechariah chapter 3 and use it as an illustration of what justification looks like. It's just such a beautiful and helpful picture. And in a sense, I, could, I think I could preach the rest of my life on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But let me do it here and let me take up about 10 minutes. The first thing that we see about the doctrine of justification or the removal of iniquity from this illustration is that we are sinners against a holy God. So you see in verse number one, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And it says in verse number three, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. We read that in English, and it doesn't hit us quite so hard because, well, I don't know what your job is. Uh, I'm a bivocational minister, and I do a lot of construction work, uh, remodeling in homes. And there are times that I come home, and my wife is used to it, so she really doesn't say this, but let's just pretend like she says this. Honey, you're filthy. I've been crawling under a house or... I've been, you know, in the mud. You're filthy. Well, no big deal. I go take a shower and all's well. Well, so we read that filthy and it's like, eh, it's not that big a deal. I mean, people get filthy all the time. But it's so much more striking when you understand that that Hebrew word is the same word that is used for human excrement. It's the same language. So here's Joshua in his priestly garments these robes that he would wear as he does his service in the temple, these that he would wear on the Day of Atonement. He's just filthy. There's a sense in which what other language could the Bible use to give us a more disgusting description of what Joshua looked like? And I want you to turn to a passage. This is important for us to see. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. You've never heard a sermon on this in your life. Deuteronomy 23. This is not where most preachers are led to preach. You've read this in your Bible reading, but maybe you've never had all this put together. You know, this filthy garment, this isn't dirt stains from a hard day's work. This is filth of the worst kind. But, but look at these verses, Deuteronomy 23. Look at verse 12. This is part of the civil law that God gave to his people. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon. And it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. Now, the authorized version has given us a, a very sanitized description of our necessities, right? But look at why. Here's the kicker. Verse 14. For, or 
because, that's the word, because. Why is it that you have to bury that? Why is it that you have to take care of that? Is God just concerned about sanitation? He doesn't want germs to spread? Well, okay. But here's the reason. Verse 14, because the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. Now this is significant, right? There was, this was a real command. This was part of the civil law. This is what was required of every Jew. They were to dig a hole and do their business and cover it and, and all outside of the camp. But it was also an object lesson. It was teaching the people about the holiness of God. Open excrement in the midst of the camp would cause God to turn away from the people. That's what God says in verse number 14. It was a picture of open sin and defilement. And God is holy. And God can't be around open sin and defilement. And so it has to be put away. It has to be covered. Right? The, the object lesson just becomes so clear to us of what's going on. God cannot be in a place that is defiled. And so here's Joshua, the high priest, standing covered in the very thing that God specifically said, put away and cover it up. And here's Joshua with it all over his clothes. Now let me tell you your biggest problem. My biggest problem. Our biggest problem. You don't see yourself as being that bad. You don't. You don't see yourself that bad. You see yourself far more cleaned up. You see yourself far better than God sees you. We don't acknowledge our sin rightly. Our sinfulness causes us to not rightly acknowledge our sinfulness. That's how sinful we are. But remember, I'm speaking to you about hope in the midst of chaos. Hope because of justification. Hope because of the removal of iniquity. And part of the hope that we have is that God himself has correctly identified our problem. You can't fix a problem that you don't know about. And you can't solve a problem that's been wrongly identified. That's so much of counseling today. So many people, I get off on a rabbit trail here, but so many in, in counseling, they come and they, they seek to enunciate their problem and they can't be helped because they don't identify their problem as sin. They identify their problem as somebody else's fault. They identify their problem as, as, as completely external. And the Bible gives no hope Let me put it this way. The Bible gives no hope for that's just my personality. There's no redemption for that. The Bible gives no hope for, well, that's just the way I was raised. The Bible doesn't give an answer for that. The only answer the Bible gives is for sin. And until you identify your problem as sin, well, you're not going to find hope. The Bible deals with sin. And there's hope for sin. And God has rightly identified the problem. 
But we move on here and we see God sovereignly removes our iniquities. He not only identifies the problem and, and identifies us as sender, sinners before him, but he sovereignly removes those iniquities. Look at verse 4. He answered and spake unto those that stood before him, Take away these filthy garments. Take them away. Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. There's a lot of words in the Old Testament for sin. Sin is one of them, obviously. Sin simply means to miss the mark. The word iniquity really has that idea, that connotation of something that's crooked, something that is perverse, something that is off track, something that is out of the way. And this is the word the Lord uses here. He commands this filth to be removed. And so that's what we learn in justification. Our sins are taken away. Our sins are removed. They're forgiven. They're remembered no more. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. They're gone. This overlaps a lot with what we were looking at last week with that woman who had been caught in adultery. And the Lord says to her, neither do I condemn thee. The Lord forgave her. He removed her iniquity. And so here's Joshua. He comes initially with these filthy garments. The Lord identifies that filth and he says, take it away. And what a glorious truth that our sins are taken away. But not to be crude and not to, to put it in a way that's inappropriate, but a way that's, I, I say it this way on purpose to get your attention. But a justification, it doesn't end with us just standing naked before the Lord. We're not just naked before Him with all of our sins gone. You see, as I was saved when I was seven years old, and I never heard a sermon on imputed righteousness until I was 18 years old under Dr. Alan Cairns. Most of you would know who he is uh, with the Lord now, but a minister in our church in Greenville. First sermon on imputed righteousness I'd ever heard. And the way I understood what it was to be saved was that you repent of your sins and the Lord takes away all those sins and you're saved. And it's kind of this metaphorical pat on the back of go do your best. And you just try hard to serve the Lord. And that's what it is. And I never heard the rest of the story. But there's more to the story. And that is that God clothes us with his own perfect righteousness. Christ's perfect righteousness. And so that's what we have also in verse number four here. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, Take away the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have caused thy iniquity to pass from thee. And then here's the deal. I will clothe thee with change of raiment. This change of raiment is a picture of that perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. In that legal sense, we stand before God as perfect and as righteous as Christ is righteous. The very moment that God objects to Christ's righteousness and casts Christ from his presence will be the exact same moment that he casts you away from his presence. And obviously speak as a fool, because such a thing can never be. You cannot be cast away, because the Lord no longer sees you in yourself. 
He no longer sees the filthy garments. He no longer sees the sin. The sin's been removed. And, and those filthy garments have been replaced with the spotless robes of Christ's righteousness. And God sees you through Christ. This is the hope of justification. It's a sovereign act of God. And because God has done it, it cannot be undone. Those spotless robes of the righteousness of Christ cannot be taken from you. And here's hope. See, Israel was in all this chaos. Here's Joshua, can I put it this way? The most holy man in all of Israel, the high priest. And here's his condition. And the picture of God redeeming that and and dealing with the sin and clothing him with that righteousness is hope. A hope because of the removal of iniquity. But I want to move on to a second thing. We also see in the rest of this chapter and, and through this vision, the second thing we see is hope because God will preserve pure worship. God will preserve pure worship. He'll remove iniquity and he will preserve pure worship. This part of the vision really explains to us why this vision is being given. It's an illustration of justification, of course, but there's more to the vision than just that. Why did God show this vision of Joshua the high priest cleansed and now in these new garments? You see, as the high priest, Joshua represented all the people of Israel, the whole nation. And he stood before the Lord as a representative of this faithful remnant of people. And the people needed to be cleansed. And Joshua's cleansing represents the cleansing of the nation. And the people needed to be cleansed because without that cleansing, they could not worship God correctly. They couldn't worship the Lord faithfully as they had been commanded to do. And so in the broader context of the whole book of Zechariah, the whole message of Zechariah's prophecy, what good was a rebuilt temple if there were no people to worship in this temple. You know, they're, they're, Zerubbabel is building the temple. But what good's a temple with no worshipers? What was the point of cleansing the people and preparing the people for worship if the Lord wasn't going to keep his promise and build the temple? You see, these two things go inseparably hand in hand. There's a cleansed people in preparation for worship in this temple. And there's going to be a temple for these cleansed people to come and worship in. The Lord is doing this great thing. This is further proof of God keeping his promise of turning to his people. So we go back to that thematic verse, Zechariah 1 verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, turn ye unto me and I will turn unto you. The Lord is turning to his people. He's going to keep this promise. He's going to cleanse the people for worship. So let me show you what I mean by saying that we have hope because God will preserve pure worship. Verse 5. So this is Zechariah talking now in verse 5. And I said, Zechariah is watching this in this vision. And man, is he excited. And so he he kind of just blurts in. I said, hey, uh, put a fair miter on his head. So they did. And they clothed him with garments 
and the angel of the Lord stood by. This mitre was one of the necessary parts of the priestly garments. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't just an add-on. It was the finishing touch, if you will. Let me read to you just here from Leviticus 16. There we have the details of the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, 4. He shall put on, this is speaking of the high priest, he shall put on the holy linen coat, he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And we see at the end of verse 5 that the angel of the Lord, this is a reference to Christ, is standing by and looking on with approval at this whole process. This is a wonderful thing that's taking place. He was happy to see pure and right worship advanced. You go on to verse 6 here of Zechariah 3. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, if thou wilt keep my charge. So there's two conditions. But if you walk in my ways and you keep my charge, then shalt thou also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So verse 7 gives us more details about the work of the minister in ruling over God's house. Joshua the high priest in this Old Testament context was going to have a a judge the Lord's house, keep the Lord's courts, and a place to walk among those that are in the congregation, those that stand by. That's the Old Testament context. We can fast forward this and make application to ourselves in in a New Testament context. This is really the ministry of the leadership of the church that God has ordained. The elders of the congregation, be they teaching or ruling elders in a congregation, they judge the Lord's house, they keep the Lord's courts, and they have a place of honor among the Lord's people. When we read here this phrase, judge my house, the word there, judge, is really the word to govern. And it is that function of the elders in a local congregation to govern, to to rule over, to not, not to lord over, but to rule over and to administer the spiritual life of the church. That's the responsibility of the elders in a congregation. They are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the souls that the Lord has entrusted to their charge. They are to keep the, the courts. Calvin commenting on this, He says, in this sense, the minister or elders keeping up the spiritual functions of the church, the ongoing work of the church and and the fellowship of the brethren and and the services and and the worship and the, the liturgy, to use that term maybe in a more loose sense, but the ongoing ministry of the word and the singing and the fellowship and the Lord's table and the sacraments and, and all these things are responsible for the courts, the, the function of the house of God as it exists of a local congregation of, of believers, all those pastoral duties, if you will. And then it says at the end, I will give thee a place to walk among 
these that stand by. Here's a concept of honor that's given to whom honor is due. You can have the imagery of of one, you know, we don't do this now. I don't think you're laying your coats on the floor for Mr. Chapler as he walks through the building as a ruling elder, you know. But but it's that sense of of honor and dignity to that one that the Lord has called and set aside for this purpose and leadership in the church. And the Lord has given this promise that he's going to restore, he's going to establish and revive right worship. These people have not been able to do that because there's been no temple. There's been no outlet for them for sacrifice. There's no altar. There's no temple. There's no place. There's no laver. There's no table of showbread. None of these things are there. And and for generations now, since Israel had been destroyed and the Babylonians took it over and they've been in captivity for so long and now they're back, and, but they're still not able to do what God has commanded of them to do. There's, there's spiritual worship of the heart, of course, but they can't follow the law. They can't do what God has required of them. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring that back. I'm going to establish that. What's the alternative? There's no hope in false worship. There's no hope in thinking that God has forsaken your worship. There's no hope in that. And so the Lord brings these people great hope in saying, I'm going to establish the house of God. I repeat myself, what's the point in having a cleansed ministry? What's the point in having a temple if there's no cleansed people to worship in it? And what's the point of having cleansed people to worship if there's no place for them to worship? And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to establish both of these things. I'm going to bring it back. And then, still in this vision, in verse 8, we have a third, third reason why there's hope and chaos in this vision, and that is hope because of the work of Christ. Hope because of the work of Christ. Here, Zechariah's looking at something that's future. We can say that so far what Zechariah has been looking at is a past event or, or one that was being fulfilled currently. But now there's going to be something in the future to look at. Hope because of the work of Christ. Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellow servants that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at, For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. That phrase, my servant, the branch, underline that. That is a phrase that is just full of theological truth and and significance. It details two very important aspects of the mediatorial work of Christ. The theme of the servant of the Lord, that that theme, that Old Testament theme, is one that is so prominent in Isaiah's prophecy. Now, Isaiah was hundreds of years before this. Isaiah had prophesied of the servant of the Lord coming. Jeremiah prophesied of the servant of the Lord. And Jeremiah also spoke of this branch that would come. And now Zechariah is, is mentioning that as well, and we see that in this vision. And you notice in, your, in the scriptures 
the authorized version has chosen to take this and they've put this in all capital letters. Now, normally what I would say to you is that when you see you know, all capital letters like that, that's a reference to the tetragrammaton, the, the word Jehovah, uh, the, the proper name of God. And, and the authorized version has, has taken that editorial means of emphasizing to us that that's the word used. But here they've capitalized branch, and I have to understand it in that honorific way, understanding that it is a reference to Jehovah, although the word Jehovah is not the word that's there. It's the word for a branch. And so what's the point? Why is this so important? Well, this branch and, and this understanding of this is something that really has to be understood. Uh, the branch that's mentioned here is not the, the limb that comes off of the trunk of a tree. I notice as I drive around, you people don't have a lot of trees. So you, does anybody from Arizona know what a tire swing is? You ever had, had one of those? Right? You, you hang a tire swing from the big branch that comes off of the mighty oak tree. Right? Well, that's a branch. Well, that's not what this is at all. This is something completely different. The word really is, it, in, in our understanding, would really be the term for a sprout. A sprout. We were at Montezuma's castle. And I saw these trees that I'd never seen before. And I, one of the park rangers was walking by and I said, what are these trees? And he said, well, these are Arizona sycamores. Well, I've heard of a sycamore tree, but these are Arizona sycamore trees. They don't produce seed, he said. There's no seed on the tree. And they also don't go dormant in the wintertime. But you'll see them always in clusters around. And there's one that's marginally bigger than the rest, and that's the parent tree, and the roots grow underground, and from those roots sprout up other trees all around. And so you, you see a cluster of all these trees. That's similar. That's similar, but really still not really a good uh, representation of the idea. A better representation would be something that I've actually experienced in real life. Um, I don't see a lot of firewood in Phoenix either, um, something you are not as familiar with. Um, but back home, we chop firewood. And so you would cut down a perfectly good oak tree, live oak tree, you know, however big around, saw the thing down, crashes to the ground, you cut it up in little pieces, and you buck the logs and you split them and you have your firewood and you'll see that stump. You can go back the next day and the top of that stump, stump is soaking wet from sap that is still trying to come up from the roots and it's just soaking wet. And so I've cut trees down, done the firewood, whatever. And two months later, you come back and sometimes out of the stump or at the ground, right there where the stump is, there's a new shoot that's taken off and, and come up from the ground. You know, and it's just a short little thing at the time. But you leave it alone and it'll, it'll grow to a full-size tree. That's the idea of this word. When the Lord says, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. 
will grow up out of the root of David, is how we read it in the Scriptures. It emphasizes for us the, the kingly office of Christ, this branch growing up out of the root of David. So we have the kingly office of Christ as emphasis here in this branch. And so from a distance, it would look as if Israel is cut off and dead. They're done for. But here's the little sprout. Here's the little branch that has grown up, and it will grow up. Ultimately, we understand it to be a reference to Christ. And so this phrase, my servant, the branch, what it does is it combines for us, at least in this context, the priestly office of Christ and the kingly office of Christ. So last Lord's Day evening, I was preaching on the mediatorial offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, Christ overcomes our ignorance. As priest, he overcomes our guilt. As king, he overcomes our fear, our helplessness. But here we have the, the priest and king combined. And verse 9 continues the picture, just uses a different metaphor. Verse 9, so verse 8 is this metaphor of the branch. Verse 9, we have the metaphor of the stone. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So a different metaphor. The Lord's going to restore. There's going to be this branch that grows up, or there's going to be this stone that the Lord establishes. Again, that imagery is common throughout the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, Christ is referred to as a stone, the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, the foundation stone for the whole church of Christ. And so Christ is going to be victorious and there's going to be there's this hope among chaos because of the perfect work of Christ but then one last thing this morning and that is what we see in the end of verse 9 and verse 10 hope because of promised peace so the end of verse 9 says I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day in that day saith the Lord of hosts shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. We have peace with God. That's one aspect of peace that's here at the end of verse 9. I don't think we can read this without you understanding that this is a reference to the cross. The, the removal of iniquity in one day, in one moment as Christ is hanging on that cross and he cries and it's finished and he bows his head and he gives up the ghost the swift removal of iniquity. And one day it's gone. God has dealt with it. And what a striking phrase to the children of Israel that understanding their history have had hundreds and hundreds of days of atonement. Hundreds and hundreds of time, times they've gone through all that ceremonial rigmarole of getting the goat and the other one and the scapegoat and out to the wilderness and the blood and into the holy place and the sprinkling here and the sprinkling there and the doing this. And it never worked. They just kept doing it. Every year they kept doing this over and over and over and over. They keep doing this. But here the Lord says, in one day I'm going to finish it all. And that's going to bring an ultimate peace that's going to come. Paul 
links the removal of sin or justification and peace together. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that will bring peace to your soul like knowing that your sins are forgiven. There's nothing that will bring peace to your soul like knowing that. Regardless of the chaos you face, regardless of the troubles of this life, where's your hope? What's in the fact that you're a child of the king? You've been bought with a price. Your sins are forgiven. And you can say with Horatio Spafford, it is well with my soul. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. Regardless of the chaos, because of the work of Christ. There's peace with God because of what Christ has done. But verse 10 uh, indicates that there's also going to be peace with others. He shall call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Now, this portion of the prophecy has yet to be fulfilled in its most full sense. But it will be fulfilled in its fullest sense in that new Jerusalem wherein dwells righteousness. It will be fulfilled. If you fear your neighbor, you, you stay within the walls of your home, the confines of your house. You don't go outside if you're afraid. I've been to several of your homes. You live in, live in peaceful neighborhoods. But you can imagine a neighborhood where at night you hear gunfire. You, know, the, you, you hear police sirens every night coming by. Well, you stay in your house. You're afraid to go outside. It's dangerous. You don't want to go there. You only go outside and meet under the vine or under a fig tree with someone that you're at peace with, someone you're comfortable with, something you're pretty, somebody you're pretty confident is not going to pull a knife and stab you or pull a gun and shoot you. And this is what the Lord is saying. You're going to call every man his neighbor. There's going to be peace everywhere. World peace. Real world peace. Now we have the heathen. They cry peace when there is none. Lydia, we were in Sedona. My wife, Lydia. We were in Sedona, and uh, she was in a shop, and we had all come outside, and this salesperson had kind of trapped her and was trying to sell her some foo-foo thing, whatever. And Lydia leaves, and the lady says, this is our year to take a stand for world peace. How do you answer something like that? Just nonsense, right? What do you, what do you, I mean, you're, in Sedona, what are you going to do? Right? But, you know, it's just nonsense. They want peace. How come they want peace? Because they know there's not any. Because they know the turmoil of their own heart. They know the chaos that's there, and they long for it. And they think that there's a human answer for it, but there's not. We know there's not. But there is an answer for it. And that is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming and making all things right, bringing peace. It was foreshadowed at the birth of Christ, was it not? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. Christ came to, if I can put it this way, get that ball rolling by being 
the once and for all sacrifice for sin, the destroyer of Satan, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, and he awaits the day that the trump will sound, and he will come again and establish peace. There will be peace. So Zechariah, this prophet of hope, he's communicating to the people that the Lord does still remember them. Even in the disarray, even in the chaos, there's hope for them. This, I hope, is an encouraging word to a small church. There's hope. This is an encouraging word to a small denomination. There's hope. You know, in the grand scheme of, of things, the Free Presbyterian Church of North America is not even a blip on the radar. And then you drill down to Phoenix Free Presbyterian Church. You're spotless. That's not what I meant. You can't be spotted. <laughs> you can't be spotted in the eyes of the world. right? You can't be seen. You, you just, who are you? We feel the same way in Winston-Salem. Who are we? Your, your city's way bigger than ours. But you, you don't even scratch the surface. Pastor Mook told me Tuesday when we were there, when he first came to Phoenix, that there was a, a man he met, I believe the pastor of a Bible church. You folks would know the story better than me. Um, pastor of a Bible church, and he told David Mook, he said, if the Lord leads you to start your church across the street, we'll still help you. Because there's so many people in Phoenix that need the gospel. That's a good attitude. That's a good spirit. That's a, that's a good charitable spirit from a faithful man. But you could have a thousand free Presbyterian churches in Phoenix, Arizona, and not scratch the surface of the need of the people in this area. A thousand of them would barely get you going. But there's hope. There's hope in the chaos. The Lord knows your discouragements. He knows your fears. He knows all your troubles. And the Lord has removed your iniquity. And He will preserve the worship of His people. Christ is victorious, and we can rejoice in Him. Amen.